You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. Claire's problem isn't really a philosophical problem. It just makes him feel better to think so. His problem with circumstances is itself circumstantial. He's suffered normal human setbacks, committed perfidies, taken some shots. He just doesn't want to fuck up in those ways again and is afraid he can't recognize them when they're staring him in the face. It's standard, a form of buyer's remorse experienced prior to the sale. If Claire would just take the plunge, always the realtor's warmest wish for mankind, banish fear, think that instead of having suffered error and loss, he's survived them but won't survive them indefinitely, that today could be the first day of his new life, then he'd be fine. In other words, accept the permanent period as your personal savior and act not as though you're going to die tomorrow, but much scarier, as though you might live. Richard Ford introduced the character of Frank Bascom in his novel, The Sports Writer. Bascom returned in Ford's Penn, Faulkner, and Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, Independence Day. His new novel featuring Frank Bascom is The Lay of the Land. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rick. Glad to be here. Richard, one of the things that strikes me about these novels is the way you telescope time within the novels and across the three novels. Tell me a little bit about how and why you come up with this kind of complex time structure. How's a lot easier than why? I'm I'm not sure I'm in charge of why. Um, I think the why finally has to be just uh, proven by the book's effectiveness. Um, If there was a why, and I don't know that there is, it's always just to try to make the books as rich as I can make them and compressing time and Um, altering the flow and passage of time is, I think, for a reader, always pleasurable. Uh, When you change change the internal time of a book or, in fact, encompass the the period of time that several books over, say, 20 years of my life take, I think the reader who is involved in that three-book sequence or involved in having a book be told over three days during a holiday. The, 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 the reader takes solace. The reader likes being moved around through these artificial time um, warps, in essence, is what they are. From the standpoint of encompassing a novel in three days of a holiday, which happens in The Sports Writer and happens in Independence Day and happens in The Lay of the Land, um, I'm, I'm trying to make a fiction I'm not trying to say that that's how we as citizens walking around on the earth experience time. I don't think we do. I'm trying to slow time down and point out the passage of time and point out how much experience there is in the passage of time that we may in fact overlook and miss and say to the reader, ipso facto, that um, there's more important things going on than you may know. One thing that strikes me about these novels, is there's a kind of a contrast. As readers, in a sense, we experience Frank Bascom as almost a friend. I mean, he's, he feels like somebody I've known for 20 years. I read the sports writer when my first son was born. Oh. And now my son's in college, and... I have another book for you. Oh, good. You have another book for me. And it was, it was wonderful. Yet, as narratives, 
you're not really trying to create a, a character or a person in the sense of creating a whole person. You're doing something very interesting with this internal narrative that you're creating. Well, that's an interesting way of, of, of describing it um, because um, I guess I hope and I try to make my hope actual um, that a reader will be engaged with this character as fully as to make him, Frank, seem almost real. I, I, and I, I never experience him that way, it's true, but I want you to experience him as more, as Forrester would say, uh, as more rounded than, than I do. To me, a character is a piece of artifice made up of language, and I'm basically trying to stuff him as much as I can with lived life and with a sensuous life and with an internal uh, intellectual life and a thinking life uh, so as to make him as, an, as a piece of artifice, as a vessel, um, useful to the reader. So no, he's not for me ever very much a real character. He's always something I'm trying to use to attract the reader's attention and get the reader to identify him as character-like so as to have a kind of ongoing discourse with him. When you create this character, it, one thing that really interests me, as a reading experience for me, I'm just immersed in, in the language that you create. But for you, how do you create it from within? Do you, uh, in terms of, I guess I'm asking kind of about revisions and, and such, do you reread your work? Do you try to experience it as we do? Well, I think that there... There must be some kind of uh, um, feeling in every writer as she or he goes through the writing and the rewriting and the rewriting and the rewriting of a book that I am making gestures on the page which I think I know how you will take. So, so yes, there is a sense that, 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 that I am looking at it um, at least putatively looking at it as I think you would. But inevitably, because these characters are always mutable till the last, sentences can be stripped out of people's dialogues, the color of people's eyes can be changed, uh, their histories can be amended to fit the larger concerns of the book. They always stay, they always stay slightly un, unreal to me, which I find to, to be quite useful. When, when characters are drawn from life, would you end up, when one ends up writing a character who's like your, you know, your Uncle Melvin, um, that, that begins to be tricky because you know who your Uncle Melvin is. And there are certain things that your Uncle Melvin just wouldn't want to say. Whereas with characters, characters have to have, uh, again, what Forrester says, the incalculability of life, which is to say they have to be willing, have to be able to surprise you, to, to go outside the limits of their own apparent characters and, and by surprising us both seem more human and also um, interest the reader and provoke the reader in the way that you hope characters will provoke. One of the main attractions of your work is your ability to write about suburbia. Hmm. I love suburbia. Hmm. I've lived in suburbia all my life. Yeah. And it doesn't get a very good rap. No, it doesn't. And for, for lots of good reasons. I mean, there are, there are, there are, there's a lot about suburbia, and I too grew up in su suburbia in, in Mississippi. There, there are a lot of good reasons why suburbia should have the rap that 
it gets. I mean, homogeneity is um, is, is not always very interesting. Uh, the lack of natural life all around you, but only St. Augustine grass, is, is can be fairly demoralizing. In fact, closeness to others whom you don't know can be despairing sometimes. Um, even the names of the streets, which I think are innately comic, of course, um, you know, Woodland Hills Drive, where there's neither a woodland nor a hills, um, that's, that can also finally eat away at your sense of whether or not you're living a real life. But for me, um, having known that for years about the suburbs and having started writing the, uh, the first of these three books, The Sports Writer, Living in Princeton, New Jersey, I looked around and um, all I knew about at that particular point, the only landscape that I knew about was that central New Jersey, sprawling, suburban, sometimes exurban landscape. And I thought, well, if that's what I know, what can I do with it? Um, but, and it didn't seem to me to be interesting to just, you know, go back to the well and haul up another uh, bucket full of you know, bitter water. So I thought, well, what I can do to just to try to be interesting uh, is to write a, a novel that is a pay-in to New Jersey and that suburban life and see if I could actually um, formulate a, a vocabulary of affirmation, which has been true through all of these books. And it wasn't so much that I personally, because I don't, uh, whether I personally thought that the suburbs were just a groovy place to live. It was more I thought that by using a, a vocabulary, or finding a vocabulary of affirmation, I could say something about the suburbs that maybe was new uh, rather than just the, the same old lit, litany of complaints. And one of the things that I thought I could say that was new is that those people who live in the suburbs are not victims of the suburbs. They are, in fact, the authors of the suburbs. And even though they may not have built those houses themselves, but actually are living in houses built by venal land developers, they they take responsibility. And in fact, there is something, as you say just now, there's something about the suburbs that most suburbanites really like, but you rarely will get them to say it. And by saying that I like this, then you begin the act of taking responsibility for your life, I think. One of the things that we find when we meet, first met Frank is this idea of dreaminess. Mm. Tell me a little bit about that. Did you ever succumb to that yourself? Well, it's a long time ago now. Um, um, I was trying to write a novel in which uh, a man would be living his life in the aftermath of the death of his son and in the subsequent aftermath, if they can say that, of, of the loss of his wife to divorce. And it just seemed to me to be the state that I wrote in response to those fictive events being in Frank's background. And when I tried to say to myself, what, what is this he's living through? Uh, what is this I'm writing? Is he, is he living in a state at all? Um, dreaminess became became the word I chose. It was um, it was in me the same as writing the existence period in Independence Day and the permanent period in the lay of the land. I was trying to I was trying to 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 elevate out of the duff of lived life a certain period that we might live through and not notice. 
and cause it to become the subject of reflection by my giving it a name. Sartre says that whenever we give names to things that didn't have names before, one of the things we do is just that very thing I just described. We, we elevate time or experience out of the noticeable to the noticeable. Your language that you use to create these, these wordscapes is really rich and very beautiful. And one of the things you do is you pack up full of details. And, and these books are just literally a treasure trove of epiphanies, of beautiful epiphanies that occur within the details. So what I want to ask you is, are the epiphanies the seeds around which the details are grown? Or the other way. The, it's the, the other way. The details create the epiphany. I guess in my tiny little intellectual scope, uh, I'm attracted to the names of things. And so those details that come um, into sentences and come into novels come in largely not because of their corporeal reference, but because of their status as language. I, I want to put this language that is all around us in play in a novel and alter the context so as to make that language more visible, more corporeal itself. And when I do that, when I write a, a series of details, then, and I, you know, I learned this from Robert Stone, for goodness sakes. I, I, I learned it a long time ago from his wonderful book, Dog Soldiers, um, that for everything you, or in this case I, for everything I draw attention to in a book, a set of details, I want there to be a consequence. I want, there, I want the sentence to say, there's this and there's this and there's this and there's this that we can see, and here is the language for it. And because of this, thus or therefore, there's this epiphanic moment. And I don't even like the notion of epiphanic because it seems a little stilted. I just want to say that for for every detail we notice, there is a consequence in ourselves that is that begins to be a moral consequence. One of the things that, that re- reading your books reminds me uh, of, strangely, uh, of what William Gibson said when he said he created, when he said he created the idea concept of cyberspace, he said he was trying to create this, he didn't, knew nothing about computers. He wrote the book on a little old Hermes Mm. typewriter. He was trying to create this idea of the place where the people who play video games, where their bodies were trying to go when they're like leaning on the video game and really they're immersed in it. And what I think you managed to do with language is a similar it's a reading experience. You fully involve the reader with with the details of your of your language, and I, and I'm wondering, do you think of the place where your readers go as a as a separate place, and and do you yes. how do you do you design it as an architect or as an explorer? I design it as a reader. Um, it's what uh, Ford Maddox Ford called living in the life of the book. And there is, if you, and, and that, the idea of place is something you have to sort of contractually agree to with the reader, just as you put it forward and I agree to it, because obviously it, it, there is no place that these people go, except they migrate somewhere out of the confinements of daily life, and they don't quite get into the book because the book is a book, 
but they go somewhere between where they were and the book, and they reside there. And in that residence, there is great pleasure. There is, there is, you know, all of the things that uh, literature can be: the renewal of sensuous and emotional life, and the burning of new awareness. And, and, and you, you, you experience that in that place that you just described. Um, and I don't have a word for it, but I, because what I say, when I hear you say place, I think, well, I know what you mean. But I don't want to. I don't want to get too fancy about it because we're still, you know, butt in the chair and book still in our hands. We're not really doing. It's not like working a pinball machine in which you're sort of leaning against the pinball machine, trying to get in there and you know make the ball go in the right places. But it is kind of like a place, really. I'd like to talk to you about Frank Bascom's periods, mm. the various periods. We have the dreaminess. Mm. The existence period. Tell us a little bit about the existence. Period. I can't remember the existence period, to be honest with you. I don't, uh, except that it was a period in his middle forties, um, just as the permanent period is a period in his in his middle fifties. Um, I'm, I'm probably more fluent about the permanent period than I am about the existence period because it's it's kind of got elusive on me somehow or other. Um, I remember somebody saying to me, you know, I remember a story that you wrote four or five, maybe 25, I don't know, 100 years ago. What was the name of that story? I couldn't remember it. It probably shocks anybody that I would forget the name of a story that I wrote, but it happens just as I forget what exactly were the terms of the existence period. But reverting to what we were talking about before with regard to dreaminess. It was just me trying to propose to the reader that a period of life that you could go through and live through and maybe not pay much attention to because conventional wisdom tells you, for instance, perhaps that the middle 50s is a kind of a bland period. It's me proposing that it's not bland at all, but in fact bears some noticing, not only because you're going to live it and you aren't going to live it again, but because it may have some properties, it may have some consequences, it may have some sensuous existence that you weren't aware of before, and because you read my book, can become aware of. But I'm entirely um, willing to believe that a reader uh, would say to me, you know, Ford, I read this existence per- period, I read this permanent period in your book, they don't really exist. And if that's the case, then I said that I respect that. I'm not even sure I believe it myself that those periods exist. It's just the book trying to act on you in a way. My pal Martin Amos, in his wonderful book Experience, talks about literary novels trying to have a, a conversation with a reader. And the, the proposition that there is a existence period, that there is a permanent period, is just one of those provisional sallies that the book makes to the reader, which it, which the book hopes the reader will respond to, perhaps even negatively. You've talked a little bit about the sensuousness of your books, and one of the things that strikes me about the Frank Bascom books is Frank Bascom is he's very interested in sex. Yes. And, and he's has something of a an 80s approach. He, he's rather promiscuous. I would have said a 40s approach. <laughs> maybe the 80s are just the 40s all over again. Yeah, I think we, we get a recycle. So maybe we can look in the year 2020. <laughs> we'll, we'll be back again. Yeah. Um, he, he's interested. He's talking about, I mean, he's talking about going 
finding these various hookers. I mean, but hookers? Do I remember that? He, Say, to find hookers. He was in the sports writer. He's 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 always talking about. There, there's a lot of references that that maybe somebody should just go oh, find see. the two hundred dollar hooker or right. something. And, and I thought one of the things that struck me though is that as interested it is in sex as he is, he doesn't actually have a lot of it. Doesn't doesn't get around to it. No, he doesn't get around to it, and especially in, in the lay of the land. So tell us a little bit about this uh, dichotomy. Well, I wouldn't call it a dichotomy. Mm-hmm. I, I would just say, um, what would I say? I would say fundamentally that the author doesn't think that writing about sex is very interesting. Um, that the actual uh, thermal mechanics of, 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 of sexuality, of Congress, of whatever we want to call it, doesn't lend itself particularly well to writing. And then, then on there are people who will disagree with me about that. Uh, but for me, I just, didn't, I just didn't want to write about that very much. My attempts to write about it before didn't interest me very much, finally. So I thought I wouldn't do it. And I also thought, in many ways, I could make better use of his um, sexual enthusiasms, irrespective of whether or not he, he acted upon them or not, by making fun of them, which I thought was a, a fodder for humor in the novel. And, and there's plenty of humor in this novel. Good. I'm glad to hear you say that. You know, you can hysterical. sometimes talk about a book as though it were sort of everything written by Kierkegaard, but in fact, this book means to be funny. It's it's hysterical. It made me laugh from the beginning. I laughed all the way through it. Made me laugh. I mean, at the very end, when I had been editing this book for a solid year to the point that it had made me ill, I could still read passages as lately as August the 15th of this year when the book was still on my desk, unfinished. Uh, and could get a laugh out of it. It's it's apparent in, in, in its effect on the reader. And we're going to take a, a detour into the world of non-radio safe language here. Okay. Um, I want to ask you about, you're, you're a master of using the word fuck. I never thought of that, but I, <laughs> I've had plenty of practice. Tell us a little bit about how you use it and how you come by your facility with uh, this blue well, language. I, well, I, I, don't, I don't know how I use it. I, I think I just use it as, as the way everybody else who is given to use using it uses it. But I, I know that in my family, uh, we, we were not a, a prudish family. Uh, my, uh, they were not a churchy family particularly. Later on in life, my, my mother got a little religion, but it didn't really, it was by that time too late, it didn't really change her behavior. I mean, the, I mean the, it's probably telling tales out of school. But, you know, what, are your, what is your past for if not to exploit it? That, you know, the coarsest things I ever heard as early in, in, in my life as I have memory were uttered by my grandmother. Um, who was a, a woman from from Northwest Arkansas who had had a kind of a rough and tumble life and and knew that what basically improved her life was just a kind of absolute furious need to save herself and um, in the process of feeling that furious need she had a vocabulary which was really um, commensurate with it and it kind of laid over into my mother's life and. Uh, not into my father's, I should say. God love him. He he was a sweet man and didn't have a, a blue vocabulary. But it came down to me. I remember when I was a kid in Mississippi, the first bad review I ever got 
which was about at age nine, was to go into the men's room in the Jackson Public Library and see that someone had written on the wall, Richard Ford has the nastiest mouth in Jackson. And so I, I felt like, well, of course, it, it horrified me when I saw that. And it is now only, you know, 52, 53 years later that I can think of it humorously as my first bad review. But apparently I did. Many times I had to be called into the principal's office because of things that I had said. And I think that my friends in Jackson, where I grew up, thought of me as a person who would say anything. And maybe it's because I'm dyslexic. Maybe it was because I was uncomfortable in school and sort of say as, as they used to act it out quite a lot. But I was capable, actually, of uttering anything. And, you know, I finally found the natural medium for myself as a man who is capable of uttering anything. I've become a novelist. One of the things that it really makes your novels seem true They seem, is the way... You, you use that language. You don't. You, you manage to find the right density. I guess is what I'm saying. It, it sounds very natural. Well, I, it's natural to me, anyway. Um, I, 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 you know, it's it's not anything I do in a fully intellected way, except at the end of, um, at the end of uh, the lay of the land. As I was reading it for the nineteen thousandth time, I, I noticed that the word cocksucker. Maybe that's two words. Uh, occurred in the book many, many, many times too often, and so I had to go back through and hoover them out of there, leave the <laughs> ones that I cared the most about, and take out the ones that seemed superfluous. Your use of humor, you, you have a really great uh, facility for uh, observing the absurdity of life. Or creating it, anyway. Creating I think I think it. a lot of times normalcy in our... Native American, if I can use that word to include myself, our Native American sense of, of ironclad normalcy causes us um, not to think of the world as absurd or not to look uh, at the world as absurd. I, I remember when I used to live down in Southern California, down in Irvine, one of the, we were all graduate students, and we were sort of on an absurd mission every day. We would go out into the world of Orange County and come back with new absurdities. And the, the greatest absurdity, I remember, was the, was the Mr. Potato Trucks that were driving around Orange County, and they probably are still driving around California, people who sold potato chips. And on the side of the truck was a picture of a big animated potato, a big Irish potato with eyes and a nose and arms and a big smiley face, shaving off big parts of his body into chips. So, I mean, that that's where absurdity sort of got, got started in me. Uh, and, and, and I realized that, that all around us, all the time, are, are those kinds of large and small absurdities. And to notice them isn't to complain about life. For a novel to seize upon them and insist on them to the extent, gentle or otherwise, that, say, my novel does, is not to disparage life, but really just to invite a closer attention to its details as a way of saying, hey, there's a lot more going on around you all the time that people are doing, that people are thinking, ways they are behaving, that's worth noticing, maybe even funny. It seems like a celebration to me. Good, because that's actually a gentle way of thinking it, and it's the way I would think of it if I could make every reader believe me. This book, more than the others, is is very straightforwardly political. Yes. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, 
I mean, comes with it, it's 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 political aspect comes with the setting. When it, that is to say, it was sure. it is set in two thousand during the interregnum between the time that. Uh, we voted for a president in America and before the Supreme Court and the Republicans stole it away from the citizenry, which seemed to me then, as does to me now, a, a constitutional crisis in our country whose consequences we are seeing worn out around us all the time. So that just came with the, came with the literally the territory. Um, and I also guess I feel like as a novelist, I don't do very much for other people. As much as I would like to think that the books of mine that I write would be found useful by others, I, I felt like I could maybe do more for a readership if I wrote a book that was a slightly more political than had been true of the others. Fundamentally, I think that there is a political aspect to almost any book that anybody writes, that, 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 that it causes you to read politics, even if it's a family drama, read politics writ small which is to say that what happens in the larger polity, what happens in the republic here, really starts in habits and practices and attitudes and beliefs and ironies and dysfunctions on the familial level. And, and while I have, had always flattered myself to think that my books were slightly political that, in that way, this I wanted to make inescapably so. Although I don't think as a person who would make a book of political book that I'm particularly smart about it or that I'm sagacious about it. I just had a few I just had a few licks I wanted to hit. And um and and somebody actually told me the other day that they had read on a Amazon website, one of these chat rooms, whatever those are, they they exist in that cyberspace we're talking about. I've never visited one. But um, some man had said well, I used to like Ford's book, but I see on page 65 he's said something terribly insulting about our president, so um, I'm not going to read him anymore, and I hope nobody else does either. So that that's that, that satisfies me in, in a way. You know, Randall Gerald said that, that when you're writing books, you have to be sure that you piss off a certain number of the right people, and I guess that's what I did. That's certainly true. One thing that I really liked about this book was uh, the way you deal with something, uh, a relationship that I think I, I'm very interested in is the relationship between parents and their adult children. This isn't something we see uh, that I've read a lot about. And so I'm, tell me a little bit about what made you want to do that. That's a fascinating topic. Well, I, if, if I was going to write about Frank at age 55, um, then... Necessarily, if unless I excluded the kids, his two kids from this book, I was going to have to, so to speak, age them from their middle teens, where I had last written about them, to their young adulthood, mid-twenties, where we find them in, in, in this book. Uh, I have no experience in these things. I don't have children. And I have not paid particular attention to the lives my friends lead with their adult children. But I thought it was just interesting. Sometimes, I'm sure every writer does this, sometimes you feel a kind of tidal pull to something. And I felt a kind of tidal pull. And by tidal, I mean it doesn't have language attached to it. I felt that pull toward um, an adult Frank with adult children. And what would they do? Because I really didn't know. 
I didn't know what the standard rules were. I didn't know how kids act. I don't even remember how I acted because by the time I was in my mid-20s, my father was deceased and my mother and I were living far apart and I was married. And, and so I thought it was actually kind of a lark to be able to figure out what plausibly could be true about Frank and his, and he'll be telling all this, of course, and, and, and how his children would be and um, what they would be thinking about him and where they would be in their lives and what they would look like once I got them aged and in place. So it was really just a, a sort of a throwing down of a gauntlet in front of myself. And it really was, that really was the way it felt. Okay, here's something I really know nothing about. Can I do it? it to my mind, you did a, a superb job. And also, you you have a lot of fun with this. So tell tell us a little bit about, especially with Paul. Well, Paul Bascom, who is 27 in this book, um, was featured really in um, the Independence Day. And and I was interested in having him come back in this book in some older form. And and one of the things that this book is, is concerned with intellectually is do we develop over time as human beings, develop so as to corroborate the notion that we have characters? And by character, I mean some consistent inner core that we will radiate from the beginning of our lives to the end. I'm, I'm a little tempted to believe that we don't, that we really, from one era of life to the next era of life, become something much different or at least potentially we can. And so I set about drawing Paul in an imaginative way as being, in my view anyway, different from whom you might expect him to be, uh, having known him as a reader and as a writer in Independence Day. And Paul is a greeting card writer who lives in Kansas City and works for Hallmark and is really is just a little fuzzball and is started to get fat and... Um, is uxorious and wants very badly to be married. He says he he says he moonlights as a gynecologist. He's just a kind of raffish, in many ways, unpleasant little creature. And um, I I um, found him lovable because I thought that that was Frank's task as his father, to to undertake to love this child whom who who is the you know of your of his seed and and yet quite alien to him and and through the through the scrim of that alienness frank still has to find ways to express love that was the real challenge not just to limb him out physically or give him vocabulary but to make him the object of frank's affections and find ways for that affection to be expressed that's one of the things that as a writer i think that you do very well is to create people that the reader doesn't exactly like, that you as a writer pretty much don't seem to like, yet we love them because they are there. They are a part of this reading space that you're creating within Frank and within the reader as you explore. So tell me a little bit about creating character, and you have a, a number of them, people who are not really nice people who you might actually try to avoid if you had met them in real life. Yet in the books, they're just compelling and, and wonderful. Well, that's a very complex piece of business, as, as, as you can imagine, um, <clears throat> ethically, morally, artistically, intellectually. Um, I mean, when I hear you say these people aren't, 
always very nice, a little voice in my brain says, so what, I've had it with nice. <laughs> but then I think, well, actually, as a human being walking around, I really haven't had it with nice. I would really much rather be around nice people than be around anybody. I would rather be around nice people than be around interesting people. I'd rather be around nice people than anybody. But in books, which are, which are, are um, special pleadings, in a sense, um, books are extraordinary places that we occupy. We can, in fact, encounter people who we might not like to encounter specifically in our lives, and we can do it at the behest of a novelist who is trying his best to find in those people who generically we wouldn't like qualities which we might, in fact, find patience for, might, in fact, find affection for or find humorous or find likable or attractive in some way. So in in, in, in that way, I, I try to take advantage of the special pleading that a book is and um, show people uh, in ways that we wouldn't always encounter them because we might be driven off from them in our daily lives. I, mean, I remember something that I read, and I can't even remember who said it, but that but but the literature or drama becomes interesting when the villain says something that's interesting. Well, for us to listen to the villain long enough for him to say something that's interesting, we have to be interested in him. We have to have sympathy for him sufficient to listen. And I mean, I'm not saying anything that's original here. All we have to do is think about Iago. And so... Um, Iago is a character which we probably do not learn to love. But he is a character, nonetheless, that we learn to take an interest in and we put up with for quite a long time and we see him through quite a lot of behavior. And that's the novelist's, that's the novelist's task, or in that case, the dramatist's task, to, to, to really try to interest us in human beings. There's a, a sense in this novel... Of of fury, <laughs> mm. and I I know that that you you live in New Orleans at least part of the time. Yes, I do. And I'm wondering if part of the the backdrop of this novel, emotional backdrop of this novel, came from what happened when it was raised by Katrina. Not one part of it. Not one part. No. no. Were you in? New Orleans? No, I wasn't. I was in Maine when Katrina occurred. And I mean, Katrina only occurred um, 14 months ago. And so this novel was finished 14 months ago, at least in the, in the main. I hadn't edited it all the way through, but no, none of that came. I, I, I don't know that I can account for what you call its being furious, um, other than to account for it in the ways that are localized in in the book, which is to say Frank has been abandoned by his wife. His children are thwarting him. He has cancer. Um, He's in the middle of his 50s. He's losing interest in his vocation to a certain extent. And 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 then so far as I created this sump of conditions that he is existing in, I must have projected myself into um, feeling for him the kind of way I think a person would feel, uh, or at least could feel. So I don't think it had anything to do much with my own background. I mean, m- maybe I'm just furious all the time. I, I, <laughs> I have been told by people who 
both loved me and didn't, that I'm often perceived as an angry person. But, you know, that's just, as far as I'm concerned, irrelevant to me. I mean, what whatever I am, it's sort of what I am, and it helps me get my work done, and that's what I care about. There's always somebody around in a room, someplace, to tell any or all of us at any given time that we're angry or we're defensive. I just think, oh, shut up, so what? <laughs> One of the things that interests me about your books is that you are very interested in de- defining people by their jobs. Yep. And, and this is something that, that uh, I'm very interested in, yep. having had a, a succession of fairly odd jobs. So tell us a little bit about the, the importance of employment, working for money, and how that makes you what you are. And you too, yourself. Well, I, I don't know that it does make us what we are. Um, um, I don't think, since I'm not a sociologist or a psychologist or a paleontologist, I don't think I know what makes us what we are. I do know that as a kid, um, I began to believe that what people did for a living, or maybe it was just my being told what people did for a living by my parents, uh, were what began to make people plausible. And you could you could create a little tiny intellectual matrix out of that, 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 that we uh, become those things that we do and how we earn our money and provide shelter for ourselves says a lot about us, blah, 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 blah. I, I don't really know that that's true. I'm just always trying to make for the reader a character plausible in every way I can, both by what he says and you know the usual things that you learned in, 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 in English 101. We know characters by what they say, by what they do, by what other people think uh, and say about them, by what they think, and as far as I'm concerned, by what they do for a living. And it just means something to me to say that a guy owns a welding company, that a man who is Indian runs a company that makes awards that other people come and buy and confer on other people. And I think those things are are reifying in a sense, that they give the character a kind of mooring in the, in, in the book that almost nothing else I can think of eye color, hair color, shoe color, how they're dressed, whether they have a dimple or a mole. None of those things seems quite as reifying as simply saying what they do for a living because then on the strength of what they are made to do for a living, then Frank can think things about that. He can say things about that. They, the characters themselves, can comment on this. And in the process of that, I can bring to bear on the book things that I think, or at least things that I can make up um, about those professions. So it's all, it's all kind of fundamentally mechanical on my part. I'm not, crying, I'm not trying to create real people. I'm trying to create in language the illusion of real people, and this is one of the ways that I do it. When we meet Frank in your latest novel, he's old. Well, he isn't. Old. He's middle-aged. That may seem old to you, pal. <laughs> I'm 62. He's 55. That ain't old. <clears throat> he, he's aging, and, and he's sick. He's 55. 55. He's You'll 55. be there someday if you're lucky. <laughs> yeah, not, not too long either. Trust me. <laughs> um, and he's sick, and, and he's, he has cancer. Yes. Is there a difference 
aging, illness? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I just gave him cancer, you know, instead of a brain tumor. You know, I <laughs> I I just thought I I just thought I wanted to make him have a problem to overcome. It, because I'm a man myself and M62, I, I, I seem to hear nothing but the drumbeat of prostate cancer all around me. It's, you can hardly turn on any medium without seeing it, you know, its consequences, its irresolute scientific history, what you can take for it, what you can do to prevent it. It just seemed to be everywhere. And so I thought, well, it's just proper to engage this in, in the book. Give it to him. See what you can say happened to him. See what you can say are the consequences of these things on his character, and then see how you can get out the other end of it. So it was, again, uh, a, a, a gesture in the book that begins to take on a kind of aesthetic substance, but fundamentally was just a kind of mechanical decision, something to give your character that he has to generate language and intelligence and, and interior life to overcome. Uh, I, in, the mean, in, in the time that I was doing this, I... Had to steep myself in all of the, all of the language of and the, and, and the sort of books of prostate cancer. I read a lot about it, so that was particularly hideous to have to do because, of course, I would read a book and immediately I had every symptoms that the, that the book <laughs> had inside it. So I, I didn't like doing that, and I'm not quite over it yet. Maybe I'll never get over it, but um, um, that's all I was doing really. Um, I mean. You know, since that is a, you know, if it was a woman, maybe it would be breast cancer. I'm sure women think to themselves that all they hear every time they turn on the TV is something more about breast cancer. And there's, there's no difference, really, in men having prostate cancer. We're all somehow living from one medical checkup to the next medical checkup, you know, trying to live our lives to the fullest in between because we know we have no control over what we'll find out. Um, so... Um, it just seemed valuable since most of what we learn, we learn from books and from medical texts and from what we hear on various media. It seemed valuable to a reader to try to generate a, an intelligence about these maladies that comes from the imagination, not necessarily just from these texts and from you know our Mayo Clinic newsletter and um, from the Health Watch on Channel 4 every night. This is a big, rich book. It's it's beautifully, you know, it's full to the brim with life. And it's a big book, too. Yes, it is. You've also written in, in acclaimed short stories, novellas. I'm wondering how you balance that out. Where What makes you decide that all of a sudden this book, The Lay of the Land, is this beautiful, large edifice and... This over here is a pristine, perfect little short story. Probably in in way no different from what you would imagine. Sometimes you're really hungry, and sometimes you're not quite as hungry as you were the other time. <laughs> sometimes you think you, you're up to a five-year siege with a book, and sometimes you know you're not. And, and, you know, finding a project to work on that seems commensurate with your own ambitions and your own feeling of, of, of potential energies for uh, this work is, is part of the art of being good at what you do. Uh, I mean, it would be awful if you thought you wanted to write a book that was going to take you five years, but you only had about a year and a half worth of patience for it. So being able to calibrate that in advance um, is pretty much it. I mean, 
I could I could say some other things about it. I could say that I'd written these other two novels, and so I I, I know I could at least think about or try to write a third book. And so if I thought about writing a third book, would I not want to make it sort of, if I could, the crowning achievement of this 20 years of my, 25 years of my of my writing life? That might have come into play, though I, I'm not sure I would have said it before I tried or in the middle. And I'm not even sure it's true. All, all of these things, you know, that, that one says about a book after the fact of writing it are wonderfully steeped in hindsight when you're doing it. I don't know what the hell you think about it. I can't even begin to revisit accurately all of the things that were going on in my brain nearly five years ago when I imagined writing this book, what my aspirations were. It all gets subsumed in the doing, and you come to the end of it, and you're slightly surprised that you've worked four and a half, five years on something, and this is what you've got to show for it. And and, and it is very much a matter of, well, I don't know what I think until I hear what I say. We've been speaking with Richard Ford. His new novel is The Lay of the Land. Thank you very much for joining me, Richard. A great pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.